What's up, Bridger Nation? Welcome back to another episode of Ridge Runners Live. Tonight, episode number 66, we had Michael Dubova. He just recently won the Barkley Fall Classic this past weekend and has an absolutely incredible year so far. This past December, he set the course record at Hellgate 100K and took second place at Old Dominion 100 in June. This is a great episode. We talked a lot about mindset and mindfulness, so it's a good one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Ridge Runners Live. Uh, we are joined tonight by Michael Dobova, this year's winner of the Barkley Fall Classic 50K, uh, as it is well known. Um, super stoked to be having him on. He's a really stout East Coast mountain runner. You might have heard of him already because of his past wins at Hellgate or the Mountain Masochist Trail Run, uh, the Highland Sky 40 Mile. Or He's got such a great resume. We're so stoked to have him on tonight. Uh, Michael, how are you doing? Hey, uh, doing pretty well. Just, you know, trying to recover after a big weekend and traveling, but not, not as lethargic as yesterday, but, uh, slowly coming around. So, so yeah, things are going pretty well, I guess. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. I am a Cameron joining y'all from Missoula, Montana in my new home. Um, as with, as with me, as always, is the lovely John Dolovacki III coming to you from a different location. John, yeah. what's going on? I have taken over the West Coast office this whole week. Uh, I'm kicked Wesley out. He's actually not around to be be allowed to be around here at all. Um, so I'm running the show over here. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, our East Coast podcast, you know, podcast, and all four of us are currently in Mountain Time, but that's okay. Uh, we still love the East Coast. Um, Michael, what are you drinking with us tonight? Drinking the classic seltzer water with four melted ice cubes in it right now. Nice. Trying to trying to still rehydrate from this weekend. So well, nothing sel- too exotic. Well, we have the same kind of other thing going on here. Some seltzer between Cam and I. Mine's a, you know, what Wesley has in the fridge. Because um, this is apparently all he has in the fridge. This is it. This and a couple Jackias. So that's to be expected, though. Cam, what about you? All right. Well, I'm drinking a uh, Big Sky Brewing Huckleberry Spike Seltzer. Um, little known fact, the first ingredient on these guys is Montana water, and um, they actually don't add anything else. It's just straight from the rivers around here. Um, but in case you were thinking, oh, that sounds really cool, like maybe I should go out there. I'm actually the last person who's allowed to move here. Uh, they just said state's closed. I got a special special permit. Nobody else can come to Missoula. <laughs> um, well, but- congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Montana's closed. Nobody else. Is there. <laughs> okay. We're having an interesting show tonight. Yeah. Um, but with that said, let's go ahead and just jump right into things. Um, Michael, let's talk about your Barkley Fall Classic uh, win this year. What made you want to go to Barkley Fall Classic after a 2019 DNF and a DNS in 2002? Um, did you show up with any particular goal in mind? Were you looking to make it, looking to make it right? You know, the way some runners talk about things after a DNF or you're just looking to get out and experience frozen head. Um, yeah, I wanted to win. I mean, it was, yeah, hundred percent redemption. It was, uh, unsettled business. It was, um, yeah, I wanted to win. I went, I wanted to get the ticket to big Barkley and, Mm-hmm. So that's, that was my goal and that was my focus. And, 
at the same time, I knew I had to kind of hold that goal loosely because I mean, anything can happen in these events. So, um, I didn't want to be too attached, but that was the, that was the intention to, to go back and, uh, yeah, just take a crack at it, see what happened. So <laughs> that's, so, uh, yeah, it, it was kind of the, the main race I focused on after old dominion and, um, had been battling some chronic hamstring issues since Hellgate of 2020. So as you know, like anybody who's been injured before, they kind of have the uh, ups and downs and insecurities of if they're in shape and if their training's adequate. Um, and so I was definitely a little unsure or maybe even insecure of my ability this past weekend, but I knew that my mind felt really strong and, I've been working on that just as much as, you know, my body and as far as preparation. So I was hoping the combination of the two would, um, kind of get me across the line first. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you kind of hit on a, a really interesting thing there, you know, that pretty much everybody who runs an ultra can associate with or identify with a little bit is that, feeling because of a nagging injury or because of, you know, past issues at a race, you know, feeling kind of insecure about your ability to do something. And it's, it's really interesting to hear that from somebody who has the resume that you do compared to guys like me and John, you know, who are in that middle to back of the pack kind of range where things are a lot different, you know, for us mentally getting ready for a race like this. So when you, you mentioned like, you know, doing some mental preparation, what does that look like for you? Does that come from you know, looking back on your big training runs, or are you diving back into the log? Or are you, you know, I always ask like, are you a big headspace app guy? You know, what's, uh, what does that look like? Um, I mean, that's been a journey for sure. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many different avenues to go down. I think they're the basic superficial things to rattle off. Like, um, you know, I try to meditate, um, at least at one point during the day, whether it's for a few minutes or half an hour, I think that's really important. And then also doing a lot of breath work, um, different breathing ratios to just kind of like reharness the present moment and not get lost in you know, a stream of consciousness. Um, and then I do a lot of journaling, like in the morning, I'll journal first thing in the morning to just kind of like, put what's in my head on paper. And I've been doing that for like several decades, actually. I like journals back to like the late nineties. So that's kind of always been there. So I think it's kind of combining all these things, you know, meditation, breath work, journaling, and then just the consistency of it. Every day is a new day and you have to be accountable and, and do those little things. Um, and then, yeah, there are those, when you get a good long run in that, that is, a good thing to kind of put in the back of your mind of like, yeah, I've done some, something tough. Um, uh, but also just with life stuff too. Like if you get through a tough life situation, then that's also kind of a good feather in your cap for, yeah, I, I've been through that. I can get through a tough point in a race. Um, and cause I, I don't know the amount of anxiety I have like a week lean up to a race is just, 
just, it would just be a, a clown show if I did not do those little things, you know? So, so yeah, we're, we're all human. We all, we all go through those, those basic emotions and, uh, nobody's immune, immune to them in my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's definitely, um, get that feeling with going through, through a taper the week before a race. Do you think that that, that correlates with the, the big decrease in running that you're probably going through at the same time? I've thought about that. I think it, it does because you're not getting that physical and emotional and mental exertion. Um, so it is probably a slight withdrawal. Um, but that's why I think you have to fall back on things like journaling or, or reading or, um, or mindfulness, because if you're mindful of that's going on, then you can actually like simmer it pretty well. Um, so yeah, but a little bit doing some downhill strides also helps take care of that edge in my opinion. So <laughs> <laughs> try that out. Um, yeah. so looking into that, going into that race. So you've, you know, kind of prepped, you had your, somewhat your mind mindset going into it. How, what did that the, look like the day of, like when you kind of approached start line for Barclay this year and knowing what you've done the past couple of years, um, what was your goal from the beginning? My goal was to not run anybody else's race and to not care about anybody else. Um, unless they were like, hurt or their legs snapped off and they needed like legit help. But like to just, I've done my training largely like by myself with some of my friends. Like, I don't know who these people are that I'm racing. I'm not going to get caught up in, in their head trash, their, their pacing strategy or lack of strategy and just do my own thing and just, uh, be my own, be my own person and stay true to, you know, true, true to who I am as a, a runner. And, um, so that's kind of what I was, that's what I remind myself before the gun goes off and just do your own thing. And then it's a long race. Like, you know, if, if you're doing like a, you know, the race could have been anywhere eight to 12 hours. It's like, it's like a work day. <laughs> like that's, you got to pace. That's, that's more than most people's work day. That's a work day in a commute. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it's least, like, yeah. you think, you think how long that stretch of time is and it's like, now just do one activity for that entire span of time. Like you better just do your own thing and, and not, not care about anybody else. Like, mm -hmm. so that's my that, strategy. Yeah. And that, that is really great advice. And I've heard it from every source under the sun at this point, you know, the run your own race, right, don't be right. too concerned with what other people are doing. Do you think that the discipline to actually, to actually put that into practice in a race do you think that comes from time and more experience racing or is that something that comes with age? Obviously I'm 24, right. I'm in a very different situation. Um, but where do you think that, uh, that that discipline actually develops or is there anything you've done to really like maybe with your meditation practice to work on having that discipline? So you don't betray that really great advice on race day. Yeah, I, I think it, I think it does tie into, I think when people get anxious and when you're in that fight or flight situation of, you know, a race is fight or flight, right? Sympathetic nervous system. I think that people are anxious. So they're looking for external validation or reassurance that things are okay. And that's maybe why they, 
they look for others to latch onto, to talk to, to run with. So I think it's just kind of being okay with your thoughts as you're running, even if you're anxious and then just doing your own thing. Um, and I feel like if you're not to say it's, it's, there's anything wrong with running with other people, but for me personally, like if I'm running with other people for too long or talking to them, I lose focus of my breath rate, how, you know, my overall pace, how I'm feeling my form, um, all those little maintenance things that I feel like are important to keep tabs on right from the start and throughout the race. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe it comes with age trial and error and just, um, overall awareness. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm fingers crossed for age. Cause that, that will happen to me, whether I like it or right. not, you know, whether, whether or not I can get up and meditate in the morning, you know, I, I will age. Um, yeah. But with that said, let's uh, start to dig in a little bit to your most recent race at the Barkley Fall Classic. Um, and of course, this race is always sort of talked about as the mini Barkley. You know, it's like everybody says it's, oh, it's the equivalent to like one loop of the actual thing. I've heard a million different things about that. I know the course changes uh, every year as well, or it seems like it's changed a few times at least. Um did you do anything specifically to train for Barkley Fall Classic? Um, were you doing any hill repeats somewhere? Did you find your own sort of makeshift rat jaw and go up and down that? What did what did that specific like physical preparation look like? I mean, I'm really lucky where I live. I'm in Crozet, Virginia, which is um, near Charlottesville, and we we're near the South District of Shenandoah National Park and. Me and my good friends, um, we, uh, we have so many awesome climbs. We have a power line climb called death star and we have a road, road Jarman's gap and that's like three miles and 1500 feet. And then we have a Carlos trail and that's 15, 1600 feet and a mile and a half. Um, so, you know, that's all in our backyard and we kind of go on that stuff year round, regardless of if there is a, Barkley fall classic esque race. So I think it's kind of just ingrained. Um, and then for me, like, yeah, so I don't know if there's anything specific I change. It's kind of just like, well, this is what I'm doing anyway. Um, and I've been bushwhacking from since like a teenager. So it's kind of really deeply ingrained <laughs> to just kind of go off in the woods and climb the mountain and not care if there's a trail. So I don't know. There wasn't a lot of like specific things. There were a few times I was like, I'm going to throw like a 10 pound dumbbell in a backpack and then go up Carlos trail, which, you know, like I said, that's like 1600 feet and a mile and a half. So just to have some extra weight. And I think just cause I was getting bored with just my own body weight stimuli. So, but yeah, not really. I think too specific, I guess. <laughs> okay definitely interesting that the the 10 pound dumbbell in a backpack is a new one for us um okay. not dragging a tire up that which you know as, right. as far as charismatic training i think that's probably the most charismatic one that described to us um, there you go. <laughs> i don't know john you have thoughts no i don't really have that many thoughts on it um it's like the 10 pound dumbbell is like a rucking kind of thing what people will do and i know i've I've done some reading into that recently about being good, uh, 
for long distance ultra running. Okay. Adding a few extra pounds here and there. I've seen people say that just walking around the neighborhood with, with weights on and walking the hills or hiking with weights has been beneficial to their training. So yeah. it's interesting that it, it worked well for you, it seems too. Yeah. And I, I have, I also do a lot of, um, I try to do three strength training sessions a week. Um, just cause I think when I got that chronic hamstring issue after Hellgate, I was like, something's got to change. Like maybe it's my core or something. So I, I did become very consistent with that. And I think that might've helped too with, um, hamstring issues and then overall strength. And then just, I was like, it, it kind of carrying the dumbbell kind of dovetailed into everything else I was doing strength training wise. Um, and it seemed like a good thing to try, I guess. So got a question in the chat from Samuel Hartman tuning in tonight. Hi, Sam. Uh, he said he'd like to hear about shoe choice and how you navigated the super muddy parts of the course. Shoe choice. I don't know anything about shoes. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I wear Solomon's. Um, I don't even remember. I don't know what they're called. Like Solomon's. Pro. When, you, when you were like, <laughs> when you were like, I don't know anything about shoes. I was like, wait, he did wear shoes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, like <laughs> that's a whole the, different story. The, there used to be like this awesome running store in Crozet called Crozet Running. Um, so they've recently closed, unfortunately, and they would always do awesome job with our shoes and help us out. And um, you know, Michelle Anderson, she would always hook us up with like what was best for our feet and. I, yeah, a pair of Solomons she put me in. I forget what they're called, but anyway, they're super grippy, and that's all I've ever bought since. So, their shoes, um, and for the muddy parts, I mean, it was kind of like a mix of digging your fingers into the mud, kind of like finger holes, and then kind of like having your foot kind of cockeyed to like dig your heel in and then there's also you would grab like the stems of thicker briars um and careful not to uproot them you could usually tell like in the first half second if it's going to uproot and then kind of like carefully just do that um some parts had like this old like electric cable that was quite necessary to use kind of like a almost like a repelling rope repelling wire i guess um so that was kind of the navigation of the mud, I guess. It wasn't really navigating mud. You're just kind of at the mercy of it. It was just Get up. just trying your hardest. Yeah. Uh, John know. Anderson in the chat says you wear the Solomon Sense Pro Fours. Okay. <laughs> so the answer has been provided for us. All right. <laughs> so when you ordered new ones, you just go like, I need another pair of the same two I had. Well, it. now, now it's, it's, uh, through Solomon because everything's like messed up with the COVID stuff and it's a disaster. So, um, I've just been ordering off the Solomon site and I do whatever my, my previous purchase was. Cause I'm like, that's what works. <laughs> so. Oh my God. Nothing wrong with sticking with what works. Right. <laughs> so, um, during the race then, did you have any like serious, um, low points? Um, you know, it, it's, a, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to like drop out. Um, <laughs> so I don't even know where to begin. 
First low um, point, then, I guess. First low point. When I blew past a turn for a checkpoint and kept going for a three-quarter mile through this uh, power line area where you're bushwhacking is torrential downpour. I was expecting to see an elbow bend for a logging road, which is where there's supposed to be a punch bib. And in my mind, that's what I was looking for. In reality, that was, it was not that at all. So I kept going and going down this power line cut for like three quarter mile, <clears throat> kept falling and tripping. And then, um, my contact started to fall out because of the downpour. So I was like half blind. And then all my water bottles had gotten holes in them from thorns. So they were totally empty. Um, and then my Ziploc bags of tailwind, I had fallen in the mud so much, they filled up with mud. And so my only nutrition was like mud mixed with tailwind that I was eating raw. <laughs> and so that was a really low point. Cause I was like, is this, is this a joke? Like at that, cause I, I'd, I'd been in the lead. I just gotten in the lead. Um, and then I like immediately just couldn't find this dang like tent to get a punch and, uh, things got eerily quiet and there's like, I feel like I couldn't really see the ridge line where it bombed down from. And then I was like half blind cause my contact was falling out. And then I was just like bonking, no water except the rainwater from the sky. And I didn't know what to do. It was like this weird moment of panic. And then, so it's kind of just standing there like, okay, this is a crossroads of decision. Do I keep going down this power line or do I turn back and bushwhack back until I see another human being? And so I did that and then saw where, you know, I, I had long lost the lead at that point. And I saw people where the, the unmarked turn was and is basically this low line tree branch was, I guess, the spot you're supposed to duck under. And, um, so I got the big bib punched and asked them how far ahead the leaders were. I think at that point they said the leaders were like 20 or 25 minutes ahead of me. <laughs> so, you know, my plan a was, <laughs> was basically at that point, like, you know, it felt pretty far gone. And I had that, the climb back up, um, to the next part of the course to kind of really think over and take stock of, okay, how are you feeling physically, emotionally, mentally? Is your contact in your eyeball? Um, like, um, and yeah, it's kind of this, is that, that weird point in time where you have to make a decision of how deep you're going to dig. And if your why is strong enough and, my why was very strong and um, I kind of kept in mind to like never give up. You never know what happens. Like you can still put one front from the other and keep moving and um, just work the downhills. Cause I feel like downhills are technical downhills. I feel like are like my strength. And I was like, don't think of any of the climbs. Just think of all the downhills that's left and just just like annihilate yourself on the downhills and maybe you can make up that like 20, 25 minutes. And, um, and I don't know, I guess that low point slowly dissipated 
when I got up the last power line climb and, um, and I felt like, okay, it's a lot of down lift and just one more major climb. I think I can just try to play my strengths here and try to psych people out if I catch up with anybody. So I don't know, but yeah, getting lost was the major low point. Cause you feel like you're just out of it. They're just gone. Like it just, it just shatters your, <laughs> your whole existence in a way. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know. absolutely. Um, and I, I want to ask more questions about what actually happened during the race after that. But first I've just, I've got a logistical one and I think I just don't understand when you're describing mud mixed in with tailwind that you, <laughs> yeah. and I think I quote, we're eating raw. What, what is this situation? Are you, are you just, I'm imagining you dumping Ziploc baggies into your own mouth, um, which is a lot just lost in the, the woods at yeah. Frozen Head State Park. I can't imagine you're the first person who's done that to be fair, but yeah. So it's exactly that is, is there's just so much mud and I'd wiped out so much and like fallen backwards and like face planted and you know, on this part where I was lost and getting more frustrated. So, you know, in the more frustrated you get, the more tense you are, you're not navigating rough terrain as well. You fall more. And so my pack was just covered in mud and then it seeped into these Ziploc baggies that I had with the tailwind. And, and then it kind of became gelatinous and I didn't have any water because my water bottles all had holes from the thorns. So I was like, well, I have like rainwater from the sky and I have this gelatinous, muddy tailwind. Like that's the, that's the only option. <laughs> it's the only option. So, <laughs> so I just like kind of just ate out of the Ziploc bag as I went. And that was, I mean, it was the, the best worst case scenario, I guess. So that mud, <laughs> I'm, so I'm trying to envision this. So it's, it's more of a liquid that seeped into it, right? So it's like a liquidy muddy soupy thing and not like chunky mud like it wasn't like chunks like okay gonna, yeah it wasn't like a chunk of mud and okay. tailwind i'm like i'm gonna just that's no, what it I was, was like all i like was imagining yeah. i was imagining more of like powdered sugar on top of a brownie type situation <laughs> no, no, like no. wait no <laughs> it's like are you chewing <laughs> no there's no chewing it's just <laughs> liquid got it <laughs> yeah that's... it wasn't even liquid it was just like this gelatinous goop you know, um, yeah, I don't know. Oh, do you think it performed better mixed with mud um, than by regular water? I think it had a bit more trace minerals, and you know, <laughs> the t- tailwind. No, yeah, I was gonna say we we have the new product for them. <laughs> All about innovation. <laughs> the answer was right under their feet, and they didn't even know it. <laughs> Always, um, and so when you you know, describe, you described your mindset really well with coming back into things. Right. Um, logistically, I'm wondering if when you talked about faking some people out on those downhills coming back, is that kind of your, your general strategy? You know, when you pass somebody, I'm going to pass with confidence. Um, I've even, you know, some people are even like, I'm holding my breath when I pass people, I don't even want them to know, you know, was that, that was sort of your energy then going into, um, chasing people down in the second half of the race. Oh, hundred percent. Like you don't want to show any weakness, even on any of the climbs. It's just, 
don't even look back. If they say anything to you, I don't say anything back to them. Like, dude, it's a race. Um, the mindset is like, you have to be ruthless and play to your strengths. And, and it, I was also just in this rage mode. Like, I was like, I cannot believe this happened again. Like when you're in the lead and then just, you know, are then suddenly within the same, within the same breath, like 20, 25 minutes back. Like there's also just tapping into just this rage, you know, in a very like controlled and healthy way, but just like, okay, <laughs> like, like there's some work to do. Let's buckle down. Let's get to work. Um, and see what you can do in the last third, you know? Um, but yeah, you do. And I, it's not like, it doesn't take a lot of thought to psych people out. I think it's more of just also just running naturally. Like if, if, if you're running naturally on something you feel confident on, I think that alone can psych them out with it without you having to put on any, anything, any, any extra theatrical behavior, you know, you just do what you got to do. Um, I think a lot of people are scared of downhills, but I mean, it's like free time. So <laughs> that's true. It's, I mean, it is gravity, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it, I think it works in Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. Some people seem to be very scared of it. Like, dude, just go downhill. Yeah. And something I, I learned from friends of mine who are mountain bikers is that at, at a certain point, it's more dangerous to go slower going down. Yes, exactly. Especially so the, in the, like rough conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more worried you are about falling, tripping, all of these things, the, the more likely it actually is to happen instead of just right. letting go and flowing down the thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Cause you're not as tense. You're just free flowing and you kind of move with the topography of, mm-hmm. of the landscape. Like if you just go with the lines and it kind of tells you where to go, you're not resisting it. You're not like, you know, it's just like water, like follow the water path of least resistance, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. And so we asked about your, your lowest moment at this race. What was, what was then the highest moment of things for you? Was that, was that crossing the finish line? Was that taking the lead? When did you sort of feel the most at home, the most confident in the most flow state at this race? Um, I don't know. I tried to prevent myself from having a high point only to the point that I know that, that if you let a high point get too far above you, then you lose focus on what you're trying to do, which can lead to, um, mistakes and a lack of focus. So I don't know. I I was trying to just stay very even Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is what I'm here to do. I'm just going to maintain that. If I start to feel good, great. It doesn't mean anything. If I start to feel bad, great. It doesn't mean anything. I'm just going to be even and be non-reactionary to those ups and downs that you're inevitably going to go through. Okay. So I think it's just being aware of it and not getting, not, not getting attached to the concepts that you're having um, a good patch. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's that, um, that saying, and I, I don't know who to attribute this to, so please forgive me, but that it never always gets worse. And the inverse right. of that is also kind of true. It's like you never always feel incredible in the right. second half of something. So you just 
you're not so much leaning into that as so, so much as you're sort of just sitting on it and not right. letting it build up too much because right. leaning into it too much can kind of push your race in the opposite direction. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Right on. That's great. Um, and so I'm assuming then you had kind of a, a similar approach to all the weather that was happening there. You know, it's, it's frozen head state park. It's like, it's got its own weather systems, you know, yeah. just kind of going to this weather is going to be whatever it is. You know, I don't even know what shoes I'm wearing, but they'll do fine in the mud. Right. No, I, I think the worse, the weather, the better, in my opinion. And, and at the first, the first part of it, it was so humid. Like the, the torrential downpour was a very welcome thing in my opinion. And especially for me, because my, all my handhelds, I'd either lost them on the first, mm-hmm. like, you know, briar part or they had holes in them. So if it had, if that humidity had maintained, I would have been so SOL because right after I left an aid station, the water just came right out the bottom out of the holes. And so, you know, I maybe got like three gulps before my handhelds were empty and had nothing. So the fact that it did start to rain was actually, I was like, all right, this is awesome. So, um, so yeah. And then it, it kind of got pretty chilly once you started climbing again. And, um, I have right now syndrome. So that's, that was kind of flaring up. Like my hands were kind of starting to go numb, um, just with the swings and temperature and, and moisture. But, uh, so I was kind of more worried about that, but that kind of maintained itself. Um, but yeah, I thought the weather was, was actually pretty good overall. That's good. And then, so this is another thing I've been, I've been wanting to ask about, you know, I know a couple of people who've done Barkley fall classic, of course, Wesley who's not with us and Samuel Hartman, who's with us in the chat. Um, nobody, I've never heard anybody say anything about the aid stations at this race. You kind of have so far. So tell us a little bit, what was your, your strategy going in them? What was the, the vibe at these aid stations? You know, you're apparently drinking all your liquids there because your handhelds have holes in them. Um, what was, that situation like at this race i mean my policy with aid stations is always to get in and out as fast as i can and um so i'm not really there to like observe and take note of the vibe or anything it's like okay where do i refill and i'm gone um i was under the assumption that there was only going to be water at the aid stations and so i had all my nutrition on me from the start um, and I'd counted out calories and had them in like, you know, Ziploc bags and stuff. Um, but they ended up having like sword and which is like a, like a tailwind and, um, other things like cookies and granola bars. Um, but it's all done by the local volunteers and high school football team. So it's really cool how it is like a community, community event that, you know, was created down there. Um, but, uh, every, you know, on all, it's, it's run really smooth. So yeah, kudos to them. I think they had, um, more things. Cause I think when Wesley was talking about earlier, he said they had water and chips. Those I think the extent yeah, of it's, he experienced. Yeah. So. so I think it's kind of just, you know, if you want things super specific to your needs, you better haul it yourself. Yeah. It's not like one of those Otherwise, where you yeah. go and there's like a full spread of you know, quesadillas and peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. If you're wanting a quesadilla, 
people would have to have brought that in their pack. <laughs> so. Um, John Anderson in the chat, dropping some more knowledge on us says it never always gets worse. David Horton. So if that is indeed true, that's awesome. Um, and yeah, I can already see the text message that Michael Owen's about to send me just yeah. scathing for not knowing that it was Horton who said that probably I get scold- scolded by him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so nearing the end of this race, then when did you kind of start to realize that you were back in first and like kind of catching up to people and staying in that flow zone, like you said, and not letting that like high or happiness kind of override the goal. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know I was in the lead till Steve Durbin told me after I finished. Oh, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> well, you never knew that one. I guess. Yeah. So at the last, um, bib punch, um, I was kind of in a rush. Like I was catching people. I caught up with one of my, my friends, Frank Gonzalez, who, and we had carpooled down there together and, I didn't ask him. I just kind of blew by him. And, but I knew he was probably somewhere in the, the top 10. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm catching up. Like, I don't know where I am, but I'm catching up and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing until I run out of tarmac. And, um, you know, after I passed Frank, maybe a couple minutes later, I caught this other guy who I guess that was the guy who was in first and I didn't know it. I just kind of blew by him, got to the aid station he ended up getting there his bib punch before I did. I was getting trying to fill up my handhelds for the last climb and descent. And then I was like, okay, just keep trying to pick people off. And so there's a flat part of pavement for the last climb and past that guy. And I didn't think I was in the lead, but I was like, okay, just that's one less guy in front of me. Keep moving. Just, you know just keep trying and um, try to salvage what you can. I guess that was the thought process, like just salvage what you can. Um, and, and then Steve told me after I crossed the line, I was like, okay, well that, that goes to show never give up. Right. It's the, the cliche of it's not over till it's over never give up. So, um, um, but I, you know, if, if I had known I was in the lead, I, I would have raced the same way. You know, I was thinking back, like it, it wouldn't have changed my approach or my aggressiveness on the climbs or the descents. I would have been just as so, um, whatever that's worth. That's, that's really good to hear. Um, and so let's, um, unless we have any more questions from the chat about Barkley fall classic specifically, we'd like to transition talking a little bit more about your, your just ultra running career generally. Um, you currently are an ICU nurse. We talked a little bit before the show about being um, a travel nurse um, with us. How did you find ultra running and then how did you kind of fit it into your lifestyle as well with like all the time commitments you have going on? Uh, well, I'm not a travel nurse anymore. I mean, so I've been an ICU nurse since 07, um, but I've been at the same hospital for like 10 years. And then I, finally got out of doing ICU a couple of years ago, went to the cath lab, but then COVID happened. So they pulled me back to ICU and I've been yo-yoing since. Um, and then I also build custom musical instruments like guitars and mandolins, and, um, things like that. So it's those two jobs and then the running and, you know, I have a six year old son and 
Um, so yeah, it's a lot of juggling, but again, that's where I think just being mindful of what you're doing in that moment, because that's the only moment that exists. So give that moment your all type thing. Um, and then you can juggle stuff, I guess. But, um, with gaining ultra running, that's because of John Anderson. Um, <laughs> that's son of a bitch. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It just, it kind of dovetailed into all of my interests when he introduced it. So maybe it's good timing. You know, I'd been running since high school and when I was younger, I'd bushwhack in the woods all the time to hunt for arrowheads. And, um, and then I got into to triathlon in college and I rode my bicycle across the country and, um, mountain bike part of the great divide trail. And so I was really into like long distance cycling. And then I would gotten kind of burnt out from running. And so then I got really into rock climbing and then, but I didn't want to rock climb where other people were climbing. So I would then start bushwhacking to the national park, general national park and along the blue Ridge parkway, looking for hitting crags and boulders. And I would like self belay myself on these hitting crags and haul my gear and, but then I got to a point where I realized I was just enjoying the bushwhacking and finding these hidden gems more than the actual climbing. And that ties into about when I met John Anderson and he was him and his, or my friend, his great friend, Dan Spearin, they were going to do the, this race called the Jarman's Invitational Marathon where it's, you know, first weekend in August starts at high noon up and down a gravel road five times. It's like, 28 miles and 7,500 feet of vert. Um, just a real not great race. And uh, so I agreed to do it. And then it just snowballed from there. I mean, I haven't raced a lot as you can probably see, but um, that was my first ultra. And I've kind of slowly, you know, do a few every year, try to intelligently build on the previous year. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> about, cause you've got these three, in addition to having a family, right. You've got these three very huge things in your life that are for most people, it seems like, you know, if you're like, Oh, I build custom mandolins, that would be like your only thing. And you're like, Oh, I build custom mandolins. I also win these crazy long races in the woods. And by the way, I like, I'm an ICU nurse. Right. Um, and when you talk about, you know, balancing those things and just being in the moment because that's, that's where you are and that's all there is. Right. Um, do you find that the difference in intensity in all of these activities balances them out for you and sort of like helps keep you centered and in the moment where, you know, I like the physical act of like building an instrument is may, and maybe you don't agree with me, but it, it feels so different from, for me thinking about it than doing something like Barkley fall classic. Um, how does that sort of like play out in your mind? Um, I don't know. Just like a race is like a journey. It's like a micro journey, a micro adventure. I kind of see building instruments as the same way. It's you're taking something that's just, that used to be a tree from a raw slab of lumber and then trying to turn that into this vision in your mind that can inspire your client to create music, to share with the world. And so that feels like a very worthwhile journey, just like a race 
feels like a worthwhile journey. Um, and yeah, so there is kind of a similar intensity. There's definitely that flow state and all those things. There's definitely, whether it's parenting, whether it's building an instrument, whether it's working in the ICU or building instruments. Um, but it, it's also easy to zone out and to kind of flirt with burnout. So I think that's when you always have to like pause and step back and, you know, go sit in the woods and just think about things and just listen and be still and just be okay. Not doing, um, just to make sure, keep, keep everything in check. <laughs> so, I don't know if that makes sense. So, I mean, I, I would definitely say it does for, okay. for me at least. Um, I don't know, John. Oh, being still is good. It's I've learned a lot from being still, but what actually is important. So, yeah, it's, it's easily forgotten about. I think, mm-hmm. especially this day and age, like it's it's the most simple thing. Just like breathing, it's the most simple thing that we all have access to anywhere and everywhere we go, and it's free. But we all forget it's there, and and then we all kind of create our own chaos. Yeah, but it's anyway. Yeah, I mean, being bored is not really a bad thing i think right i um, agree like i know when i'm at the store and stuff i try not to if i'm standing in line distract myself with things just chill out i'm standing right. in line just it'll right. be over in a couple minutes <laughs> you don't, <laughs> right. don't need to go through facebook and text and like, it's just right just hang out it'll be okay yep it'll be okay <laughs> um i'll take a quick break real quick and just remind everyone who's watching if you like what we're doing here um please go ahead and click the subscribe button it helps us we greatly appreciate it um if you've got final questions for michael put them in the chat so we can get those to him before we get to the end of the show um yeah i got that's that's my mid-show break that's that i got i got a couple more for you before we get to our uh our quick questions and we want to thank everybody who joined us in the chat tonight. Uh, please, if you have anything else to ask Michael, drop in there, John will let us know. Um, but in this transition from your first ultra to where you are now going into um, a race and having that express goal of, you know, oh, I want to win this race. Where did that turning point sort of come or were you going into all of these things just sort of immediately being like, I want to win. I want to compete. I'm a, I'm a competitive person. Or did that shift sort of happen gradually? Um, gradual, because I think it, it had a lot to do with self-esteem. You know, I think for a long time, if you deal with low self-esteem, ultras can be like this nearly impossible task. So it's gradually, um, you know, it's just one step at a time and building confidence in yourself. And I think it's also not caring about whether other people think and just staying, you know, sticking to your own true North and being okay with the pace you're going, the process you're moving along. Um, but I think if there's one point that really just like snapped me out of it or not, yeah, snapped out of the old mindset into a new mindset was Hellgate 2019 when it was like freezing rain um, I had to face so many demons, um, and I got so hypothermic. I thought, I, you know, I was like, I was like one flick away from probably being like evacuated out of there. 
And I, I was like one, one tick away from being like, like totally just unconscious. And I had gotten backtracked back to the last aid station I'd passed through. Couldn't form words. Didn't understand people were saying, I thought they told me to get in a car. So I sat down in like a puddle and then I just like passed out. And then I was in this weird dream state, like in this car, they had put warm blankets around me. And I remember it is like deep in my dream is just like this, like whisper of a voice being like, get up, keep trying, like never give up. And I, and I feel like the old me, it would have been like, Oh, you're hypothermic. You have right now syndrome, just drop out. But this voice was like, it just got louder and louder until like it kind of woke me up. And then I, when my eyes opened, I wasn't chattering. I was a little more coherent. I was kind of disoriented, but um, I knew I was going to get out of the car and just like finish, even though it'd be painful. Um, and so I got out and finished and is right when, again, Frank Gonzalez was passing by. And, and so we kind of trotted along together and then I kind of just snapped into rage mode <laughs> and then just started <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to be in like top 10 or anything anymore. Cause I was, I was out for like an hour. Um, but I was like, I'm still going to give my best. I'm still just like, let's do this. And, um, I ended up finishing and, um, that felt like a, a huge, a huge mental shift for me that I'm still kind of digging through and trying to understand all of it, despite the patchy memory of it. <laughs> so, Absolutely. so yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, thank you for sharing that with us. That's super interesting. Um, and I think that's a good place, uh, John, if there's no more questions in the chat to then go um, move on to our quick questions that we always ask at the end of the show. Just just one from, from Wesley. Uh, okay. I got done running and he says, who's going to be the first Ridge Runner live guest to finish Barkley? Is it going to be Michael, Liz, Samuel? We'll have to find out. Only time will tell, I guess. I don't quite think that was a question. <laughs> He's got question marks on all of them. <laughs> all He's got so, I I think that's just more his tone, but you know. Uh, but we'll see. Um, mm -hmm. Well, let's get into our quick questions because those are some of the best questions of the night. Um, first up on that list is what's one thing you can't leave an aid station without? Um, obviously, bottles without holes in them is a, is a good one, but. Um. I guess like shoes. I don't know. You don't like have like a gel or a, a PB and no. nothing like that. No, it's just, no. There's zero specific preferences. <laughs> there's been so many times where it's like, whatever is there is there and we'll have to work that that's kind of the new norm for me. I feel like, so as long as it's not muddy tailwind, like I'm, I'm good. I'm good to go. Oh, I love the muddy tailwind. Um, what's the, uh, weirdest hallucination mid race or strangest thing you've seen somebody else eat at an aid station? Um, almost sounds like your hallucination might've been a, a previous one you just talked about. Sounds like pretty interesting, but have you had anything else interesting happen out there? Um, yeah, at the end of mountain masochist is like the last mile. Um, 
I think it's like Mount Damascus 2017 or 18, anywhere. They went somewhere in there. Um, my friends, Michelle Anderson and Justin Watson, I swore I saw them like right at the last bend before you get to the, the shoot and um, yelling me to yelling at me to like run faster, They're like run faster. Do blah, blah. And I get to the spot where they are and there's like nobody there. And, and they were like 25 miles back at some other aid station crewing and stuff. And so that was kind of a weird hallucination at the end of a race, but that's, I guess that's not too weird. It's just, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've never hallucinated in a race, so I don't, I don't know. So okay. um, I think it's interesting to see people's different hallucinations that they've had, um, right. especially when you're pushing yourself to literal limits, um, yeah. digging deep and stuff like that. Cam, I think the next question is your favorite now. It's, it's not my favorite, but it's, I put it on our list. Um, you know, because this this was a debate in a couple of group chats that I'm in uh, that I'm I'm pretty sure I started, frankly, as well. But um, Michael, if you had to fight one chicken on the first day of the year, two chickens on the second day of the year, three chickens on the third day of the year, and so on, compounding interest, you know, for a whole calendar year, or you got that same calendar year to train to fight a mountain lion. Um, but if you fight the mountain lion, you can get a sword and armor. If you're fighting the chickens, it's each day, just you, and whatever clothes you got on taking on however many chickens it is for that day. Uh, which one of these are you taking? I feel like the mountain lion is the obvious one. Thank you. Like that's, yeah. I, I've been like saying no. that this whole time. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I, I would, I'd say you're correct. Stick with your gut on that one. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm all about the mountain lion as well. I don't, I don't like the chicken idea. Yeah, it's That's it's horrible. too many. Too Three many weeks in, you're gonna not Three only. I think that I've just now realized, frankly, I think there might be a psychological component to this as well. I don't know if I can mentally handle having oh, to yeah. murder that many chickens with my hands. But also, right. so you're you're gonna get an overuse injury, even Every, if you have definitely. the strength to kill. Yeah. That many chickens a day. Like you just, you, there's no rest. Yeah. It's no rest. Yeah. And that's probably the, the best point of it all. <laughs> Overuse injury. <laughs> that's, this is the takeaway. This is why this question's on the show. It's like, yeah. will our guests give themselves a stress fracture or not? <laughs> right. Uh, so revealing. Um, next up, we have if ultra running had walk up songs like baseball, would yours be? Uh, can I pick two? Sure. We've had someone pick a lot of once. <laughs> That's awesome. I think I mean, Tanner Lee put the whole Smokey and the Bandit soundtrack on the playlist. Yeah. <laughs> I would have to go with, um, I always listen to Jason Isbell's song, Go It Alone. I just feel like with the guitar riff and just that whole song, it's just like, yeah. So Jason Isbell, Go It Alone. And then Bob Dylan, like a Rolling Stone, but the live cut from 1966 at the Royal Albert Hall, where some in the audience yells Judas at him because he's gone electric and he snarls back to his band, which is the band like play effing loud. And they just like crack into 
like rolling stone with this angst that's just i don't know inspiring so i would i would say those two songs for sure well uh, we'll have to see if that one's available on spotify uh so we can add it to the uh, yeah yeah okay that's good to know <laughs> all right and then so my my actual favorite question from our end of show quick questions um is if you were to run with one person in the history of the world even if they aren't a runner, they're going to run with you and keep your pace. Who would it be and why? Mm, I would say either John Muir or Shackleton. Because, I mean, both of those guys, they're just like legendary visionaries and they just, they knew how to get stuff done in ways that I think are... uh are just very incredible. So yeah, one of those two guys for sure. Um, do you have any social plugs or any shout outs that you want to make before we close out here? I know you have a YouTube channel um, for your guitars. And yeah. If anyone's interested in that, where, where would they find that? Yeah. So they can, they can Google or search for Dubova musical instruments. And everything I do is custom, one of a kind, and um, you know, built from scratch. And um, you know, I build everything from mandolins, guitars, electrics. Um, uh, I made Sage Canada's guitar and mandolin a few years ago. I built some like a matching pair. Is it um, the one in the video from his intro? <laughs> it might be the green one. It's like a green one. I, uh, I carved like mountains and stuff in it. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that's so nice. yeah, they can they can yeah. find on uh, sound samples on YouTube. There's Facebook, Etsy, all that. Um, then just shout out to to Gray Rock Diz. They're my friends out in Crozet. And you know, we we spend a lot of time in the mountains together and they're definitely the backbone um for sure with all of this. So and thanks to you guys for having me to oh. on to ramble. <laughs> well, it's been great. I mean, we'd love to hear from you and uh hear about the race and your mentality is is one of a kind, I think. Um and the way you process it and, and go through it, I think, you know, it brings interesting perspectives to hopefully some fellow ultra runners out there listening. So we appreciate you coming to talk to us. Yeah, you're welcome. And I think everyone in the chat might, would probably say the same thing. And um, we also appreciate everyone in the chat joining us this evening. Um, Pam, anything else you want to add? No, thanks for joining us. Awesome. We're going to close out of here um, and we will talk to you all next week. Bye, everybody. Ridge Runner Nation, thank you again for tuning in to another Ridge Runners live show. Remember, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out as well. If you don't follow us on social media, make sure to give us a follow. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, join our Strava club so you can get mentioned in the Strava rundown every single week. We'll see you next week, Version Our Nation. Yeah.